setting fire to the stoner stereotype, sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Welcome to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. As most of you know, I'm professor of psychology at the University of Albany. I'm the author of the book Understanding Marijuana. I'm chair of the board of directors at Normal. And I pen the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine. We're here to burn away more cannabis myths with science. Today we're chatting with Dr. Julie Netherland of the Drug Policy Alliance. Dr. Netherland earned her PhD in sociology from SUNY Graduate Center, but I promise this will not turn into a nerd fest. Uh, Dr. Netherland is one of the hardest working people in reform right now. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure thing. Can you tell us a little bit about the Drug Policy Alliance? I'd be happy to. The Drug Policy Alliance is uh, the nation's leading organization working uh, to end the war on drugs. We're a national organization that has offices around the country, and our mission uh, is to advance policies and attitudes that best reduce the harms of both drug use and drug prohibition while promoting the sovereignty of individuals over their minds and bodies. So essentially, we're trying to reduce the role of the criminal justice system in our drug policies and advance policies that are grounded in science, compassion, uh, health, and human rights. Boy, I can't thank you enough for doing it. Uh, can you point us to the uh, DPA's website? Absolutely. You can find us at drugpolicy.org. Superb. I'm uh, asking everyone about gender differences in the cannabis reform movement, and I know it's kind of an issue near and dear to you. Do you see vast differences in the movement for men and women? Uh, I, I do. You know, it's a... It's, uh... I think there's, there's sort of two things to look at. One is sort of the, the movement of reformers, and then the other is the emerging industry. And I think, you know, both have been uh, historically dominated by men. There certainly are a lot of women interested in the issue and, and interested in reform and, and trying to get more involved. Uh, so on the, on the reform movement side, I'm very excited to see lots of, of young people and young women uh, who care about drug policy reform, not just marijuana reform, but uh, the broader decriminalization of drugs and reducing mass incarceration. I think that's an exciting um, uh, area of development. And then I'm heartened to see more and more stories coming out about um, the dominance in, within the emerging industry uh, by men and by uh, white people um, and efforts to try to broaden that industry to include more women and people of color. So I think it's a, it's, you know, there's a lot of change that needs to happen, and I think people are mobilizing around it. And I hope in the future that we're going to see the involvement of both more women and people of color, both on the reform side and on the industry side. I feel like the Drug Policy Alliance has been particularly good about that with Marsha Rosenbaum out there literally every day and for years and years, and I hope she's a great model for you. Oh, that's superb. Well, I wanted to ask a few things about New York State's medical cannabis law. Would this be a good time for that? Let's do it. I um I find it's one of the more restrictive, and I was just curious if there were points about it that are uh, particularly salient to you. Well, you know, the, the, the law is quite restrictive, and it was narrowed considerably during the bill negotiations at the end of the last legislative session, and then unfortunately further narrowed 
when the regulations were promulgated by the Cuomo administration. You know, there are dozens and dozens of things that I would change about the law, but I think the issues that concern me most have to do with uh, patient access. And there are a number of provisions in the law and that were um, the restrictions that were put in the regulations that I think really could impede uh, access for patients, including uh, low-income patients. And some of those things are just the, the limited number of conditions covered by the bill. There are only 10 conditions for which people can qualify to receive medical marijuana in New York. And in addition to having those, one of those 10 conditions, you also have to have a functional limitation as a result of that condition. So it's a very uh, narrow bill in that sense. In addition, there's real concerns about uh, geographic accessibility uh, to the medicine because only five producers are going to be licensed in the state, and each of those producers is allowed to have four dispensaries. So that's 20 dispensaries for a state of nearly 20 million people in 54,000 square miles. So there's a real concern that there simply won't be enough supply to meet the demand uh, or that people uh, who live in more remote regions of the state will have to drive hours and hours to get the medicine they need. And, of course, a lot of these folks are, are quite sick and disabled, and that's uh, quite a burden to put on them. Another thing we're quite concerned about is there are real restrictions on the kind of marijuana uh, that can be sold. All forms must be approved by the commissioner. Uh, through the regulatory process, they have made clear that there will be no access to any whole plant uh, or, or edibles or topicals or uh, lotions or salves. Uh, the only forms allowable will be tinctures and oils. And so that's going to uh, be a hardship for uh, patients that might prefer uh, other modes of ingestion. And another concern is that, that those tend to be more expensive to produce and that those costs could be passed along to patients. This so one really blows my mind, actually. We're concerned about. Now, that, that one really blows my mind because I feel like we've got literally five millennia of safety with the plant, and now instead we're going to make that uh, still illegal and, and turn to these things that we, we know markedly less about. Yeah, it's really, it's really baffling. Um, you know, the administration has said that they're concerned uh, about patient safety, uh, and yet, uh, as you say, there's, there's lots of good research uh, showing that smoked marijuana is, is uh, relatively safe. Uh, and almost no research on the long-term impacts of some of these uh, concentrates, oils, and extracts. Now, we think those should be available, uh, but we also think people should have, a, uh, have access to the whole plant. I should note that smoking uh, in any form is prohibited under the statute, although vaporizing uh, is allowed. I appreciate you bringing that up. You, you know I often beat the vaporizer drum and do a lot of research on that, and I, I do feel like it would be so much better to have whole plant in part to just – get access to more of these uh, strains. And I, I understand it correctly. They're, they're limited to five brands or five strains. Is that how the law reads? Yeah, it's actually, that actually is not part of the law, but it is part of the regulation. So under the law, there, there's no mention of putting a limit on strand, uh, strains or brands, but in the, the regulations, they did this very peculiar thing that I think is unprecedented, where they said that each producer can only produce five brands or strains. Uh, you know, and as we know, there are literally dozens and dozens of therapeutic um, uh, strains available in other states that have legal medical marijuana markets. They went further to actually specify what two of those strains need to look like, one being um, <clears throat> something that's high in CBD and low in THC, and another that has equal uh, ratios of THC and CBD. Um, and so you know, that essentially le leaves 
uh, the discretion for three additional strains for producers. So, and again, in a state as populous and as big as New York, you know, you're looking at a total of, um, of, of 25 strains for the entire state, um, as opposed to, you know, other states where, you know, there are potentially hundreds of, of varieties available. Would you mind walking through for listeners why a high CBD, low THC strain might be something folks would want? Sure. You know, uh, CBD uh, is one of the many compounds in medical marijuana and one of the more research compounds. I mean, it's been shown to have a number of of therapeutic benefits. Uh, The thing it's probably best known for and has gotten a lot of attention for lately is it seems to be very effective at seizure control. And in New York uh, and across the country, uh, families of children with severe forms of epilepsy have been very involved in the fight for medical marijuana uh, because they've seen uh, promising results from legal states like Colorado where children have been given high CBD strains of, of medical marijuana and have shown great improvement in both the number and severity of the, of the seizures. And so the high CBD strain... Uh, is is most likely targeted uh, to those patients uh, with epilepsy or, or seizure disorders, and so again, this is uh, you know a good thing. We want there to be high CBD strains available in New York, uh, but we don't want to see uh, the strains limited because there are uh, lots of conditions uh, for which medical marijuana could be uh, beneficial, and we want to, we want patients and their doctors to be able to um, have the flexibility to try different kinds of strains, and ironically. Um, the high CBD strain that we've heard so much about from Colorado called Charlotte's Web uh, probably would never have been uh, discovered in a state like New York uh, where there were such severe restrictions on strains. We also want producers to have the flexibility to to try uh, new strains to meet different medical conditions, and uh, the law in New York is is simply not going to permit that, uh, allowing as it does for only five strains per producer. Do you have any sense for what was behind this rationale for not allowing whole plant? Uh, it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, what the administration has said publicly is that they want this to be, quote, a medical model, and they want the a medical cannabis to look like medicine, and that this is, uh, they think, a way to prevent diversion. So one of the arguments they made is that if whole plant were allowed uh, police wouldn't be able to distinguish between medical cannabis and cannabis that had been purchased on the illicit market. And, of course, that's absurd because the whole rationale of having a medical marijuana program is that patients would be certified and be carrying cards that identified them as such. You know, so I think it's a bit of a specious argument, but that's what they, that's what they claimed was behind it. I appreciate that we're aligned on this one, Julie. That law is driving me nuts. I do have to pause now just for uh, a word from our sponsors. We'll be back at Burning Issues with Dr. Julie Netherland of the Drug Policy Alliance to hear more about medical marijuana laws and the Drug Policy Alliance's approach to ending the drug war for all drugs. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Penguin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. 
Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. Thanks for turning in, tuning in to Burning Issues. Uh, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, and we're talking to Dr. Julie Netherland of the Drug Policy Alliance. We're just going to elaborate a little more on some of New York's uh, crazy <laughs> medical marijuana laws. So we've got basically uh, 20 dispensaries for 20 million people, a limit to only five uh, strains in products, and uh, only 10 conditions. Is that pretty much how it shakes out? That's how it looks right now. I, I should note that the statute uh, gives the health commissioner broad discretion to change many of those things. Uh, he can add conditions uh, without statutory change. He can increase the number of dispensaries. Uh, they can change the number of brands. So, you know, our position is this law is very narrow and restrictive as it is written now. The regulations made it worse. Uh, but we're hoping through a lot of uh, mobilizing and advocacy that we can uh, persuade the Department of Health to make this more expansive and turn it into a program that actually works for patients. We're also pursuing legislation up in Albany that would uh, try to redress some of the worst problems with the program uh, and try to fix some of these problems. I can't thank you enough for that. I know it's been incredibly effortful. I know there's still talk about a tax and regulated market in, in New York State. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, Senator Liz Kruger and Assemblywoman Crystal People Stokes out of Buffalo have um, introduced a, a legislation called the Marijuana Regulation and Tax Act. Um, it would essentially create a legal market for adult use of marijuana in New York, very similar to the way that alcohol is currently regulated through retail stores. Uh, we're actively working on that legislation, as are a number of other groups. Uh, you know, how things play out with the medical marijuana program and how the industry develops there, I think, was going to be an important groundwork uh, for the industry going forward in New York. You know, we're hoping that uh, people who care about this issue in New York and, and want to see 
uh, an end to the criminalization of people for uh, possession and use of marijuana will we'll join in this fight. Uh, you know, it took 18 years to pass the medical marijuana law, uh, but New Yorkers uh, are way ahead of lawmakers on uh, marijuana policy reform in New York. And so we're optimistic that if that we can uh, get the tax and regulate bill passed in a much shorter timeline. Oh, boy, I, I sure hope you're right. And I know that Drug Policy Alliance uh, reaches way beyond cannabis when it comes to policy. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch for why we should consider changing the laws for other drugs? Absolutely. Uh, you know, marijuana reform is certainly a significant part of our work, but we're doing work in other arenas of, as well at the Drug Policy Alliance. You know, essentially what we've seen with the war on drugs is an abysmal failure, a waste of, um, you know, fiscal resources, but also a tremendous waste of, of human potential and life. You know, we've locked up more people in this country uh, than any nation on the planet, and a lot of that mass incarceration has been driven uh, by our, our drug policies. And so at the Drug Policy Alliance, we are uh, working on a host of sentencing reform issues, um, trying to uh, decrease the role of the criminal justice system and how we respond uh, to drug use. But we're also doing a lot of work on harm reduction and overdose prevention, uh, understanding that drugs do have harmful effects in some people's lives, uh, and working to ensure we can reduce the risk associated uh, with drug use to the extent possible uh, for those people who, uh, who do choose to use drugs. Uh, here in New York, we are done a lot of work on, on overdose prevention. We were instrumental in passing uh, the Good Samaritan 911 law that makes it uh, possible for people to call for help in case of an overdose uh, without risking uh, fear of arrest. Uh, we are doing a lot of work uh, advancing a public health approach to drug policy, working with local municipalities uh, throughout the state on helping them reorient their policies uh, to reduce uh, morbidity and mortality associated with drug use, and again, turning away from sort of failed criminal justice approaches. So, for example, there are efforts uh, to implement what are called law enforcement assisted diversion programs where police officers instead of arresting someone for low-level uh, drug possession, would instead take them to a case manager so that they could get the help services and support they, they need to get their life back on track. So it's those kinds of approaches uh, where we start to treat drug use as a public health problem rather than a criminal justice problem that we're seeking to advance here in New York and across the country. And we've seen splendid data out of Portugal supporting this idea. Would you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, well, Portugal is a very interesting case. Uh, it's, it's a country that has um, implemented essentially all drug decriminalization. So uh, possessing and using drugs in Portugal does not result in a crime. Uh, instead, they bring people before a, a panel that assesses sort of the needs and issues of that individual and, and tries to get them the services and help they need. So they're doing that for all, all drugs in Portugal, and uh, the evaluation results of, of that sort of great national experiment have been incredibly promising uh, with improved health outcomes across the board and not a significant increase in drug use. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, bold experiment that we'd like to see here in the U.S., where uh, we stop locking people up for what they put in their bodies. Uh, and for those who do have problematic drug use, getting them help and support instead of uh, turning them into criminals and uh, stigmatizing them. Wow, what a great use of resources. I know a lot of uh, your academic work in particular has addressed issues uh, for our brothers and sisters with HIV. 
Can you uh, tell us a little bit about some relevant policy related to that, either with medical cannabis or anything else that comes to mind? Sure, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've been, you know, got involved in uh, working on HIV and AIDS many, many years ago, and it's actually how I came to drug policy, <clears throat> understanding that there was a huge overlap uh, between uh, drug policy and, and HIV-AIDS policy. And essentially, you know, the, some of the issues that frame both those issues have to do with uh, sort of precursors to why people are more vulnerable to um, HIV-AIDS or, or drug use, things like poverty, uh, education, um, and the, the environmental circumstances in which they're living. So drug policy, for me, is, is a critical tool in um, fighting uh, HIV-AIDS. You know, we see that really clearly in the case of syringe exchange programs, which have been enormously effective in reducing transmission rates of HIV-AIDS and getting uh, folks living with HIV-AIDS um, access to services that they would otherwise probably not have access to. We are currently um, exploring uh, supervised injection facilities, which have been operational um, in Canada and through many countries in, the, um, in Europe, where they create safe spaces for people who cannot or are unwilling to stop using drugs to consume drugs in a supervised space where there's medical uh, personnel on staff uh, and linkage to, to care and treatment. And uh, that is not, those, those uh, supervised injection facilities have not happened here in the U.S., but we would certainly would like to see that as a, another intervention uh, to help drug users in, in general, but particularly to help people with HIV-AIDS, uh, again, reduce transmission and, and get the help and services they need. You know, I think the other thing to consider with uh, people living with HIV-AIDS is the role of medical cannabis in helping them manage their symptoms uh, and better tolerate their treatments. And certainly, it was people living with HIV-AIDS in New York that were uh, among our fiercest advocates in getting the medical marijuana law passed. And I'm happy to say that that, that is one of the conditions uh, covered by the law, as narrow as it is. Uh, I'm very pleased that people living with HIV-AIDS will be able to access medical cannabis soon in New York, uh, as they can in many states across the country. I got to tell you, a ton of my undergrads and grad students want to grow up and be Dr. Julie Netherland. Can you give me a feel for what a day like is for you? <laughs> well, I, uh, I feel incredibly lucky to have the job I have and be able to do the work I I'm able to do. And one of the things I like about it is there's not a typical day. Uh, so right now it's the legislative session in Albany, and so uh, we're doing a lot of, of lobbying on, on uh, bills that we're supporting, but we're also doing a lot of defensive work where we're trying to stop, stop bills that would increase penalties uh, for, for drug use and possession uh, and, and establish bad policies. Uh, but other days, I, you know, I'm traveling around the state getting to meet with all sorts of people, and some of the work I enjoy the most is, um, is working with patients that are seeking medical cannabis, people that have been directly impacted by uh, the war on drugs. And, and one of the things I like most about the Drug Policy Alliance is the commitment we have to making sure that the policies that we're seeking to change are informed by the people that are directly impacted by them. So a lot of my work is, is meeting with people on the ground uh, learning more about their experiences, seeing what they want to see, uh, learning what they want to see change in our policies, uh, and trying to be um, uh, true and authentic to the vision they have for what drug policy in New York should look like. 
Um, and so that's some of the most enjoyable work I get to do. Hey, I can't thank you enough for, for being on the show, and I, I really appreciate all your work. I think people underestimate just how difficult it is to just pound the pavement and talk to these people who don't understand our cause. So my hearty thanks to you and everybody there. And uh, the Drug Policy Alliance, again, is at drugpolicy.org. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all the work you do uh, for marijuana reform. All right. We'll be right back with our favorite part of burning issues, uh, self-compassion in the art of activism. Don't go away. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at CarterInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Carter Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or 8 years old. You can still learn something that's going to make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Burning Issues. Here's our next chapter of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism, the portion of the show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. Today it's time to address the dangers of perfectionism. What's wrong with imperfections again? It's the grain of sand that gets an oyster to make a pearl. An acquaintance of mine had a chipped tooth and tons of people thought it was sexy, not an imperfection. The most interesting characters in literature and TV and movies are often the ones who are far from perfect. It's great to have high personal standards and work conscientiously. Lofty goals are wonderful, too. That's what keeps us going here at CannabisRadio.com. A friend of mine tried to raise $50,000 for charity 
but only raised 39000 Imperfect? I doubt it. The charity was still plenty happy. If you enjoy striving for excellence, I've got a special message. Thanks for your efforts. You might call yourself a perfectionist, but it might not be a problem. If falling short doesn't nibble away at your self-esteem or make you feel bad, then everything's fine. But there's that other kind of perfectionism, the dark and dreadful kind, the kind that just doesn't help. We all know it. The bad idea that perfection is essential to self-worth. In truth, I wonder if perfection is even possible. As soon as someone does something really well, the idea of perfect gets ratcheted up a notch. Perfection is the ultimate moving target, the bar that's constantly raising. How do you know if you're maladaptively perfectionistic? We have a magical technology for detecting maladaptive perfectionism. It's called See How You Feel. Yeah, see how you feel. The bad kind of perfectionism correlates with clinical depression and eating disorders and obsessive-compulsive disorder and general bum-out. It's that critical, self-deprecating, irrational voice that not only holds perfection just out of reach, but also claims that anything less is a disaster, a complete catastrophe. It's the voice that says, you're either a winner or a loser. It's the voice that says, second best is the same as last. It's the chatter that says, failing at one thing means you're a failure as a person. And any mistake is going to cost you friends, money, and respect. Whew, our minds can say some crazy stuff. This is the kind of harsh criticism that understandably gives perfectionism a bad name. These thoughts are hot and very distressing. Good thing they're not true. We've talked about examining our thoughts before, and these are often easy to catch. They usually contain a lot of always and never. They have lots of shoulds and musts. Albert Allis called them masturbation. We've examined thoughts before. It's fine to thank your mind for cranking them out. Perfectionistic thoughts often lend themselves to experiments. There's usually a little belief underlying each one, and we can challenge that belief with an exercise. When I'm getting perfectionistic, it's usually because there's one underlying belief. In my case, the world is filled with judgmental, unforgiving jerks. You can imagine how delighted I feel when that belief is fired up. So I have to plan little challenges to the idea once in a while. It's just part of the game of having a mind. When I was applying to grad school, I had a ton of essays to write, and I had to get them in the mail before the deadline. After I'd finished, I showed an essay to my dad, who found a typo. I was frantic. I assumed I'd never get an interview, I'd never get a position, I'd never get more education, I'd never get a job. Then I thought, you know... I'm not sure I'd want to go to a place that wouldn't forgive a typo. It's not like I'd told a suicidal client to jump in the lake. And sure enough, I still got in. So I needed more lessons like this, and I still do. What else might teach me that people are nice and forgiving? What if I made the occasional typo on purpose? What if I planned to mess something up just to make sure no one was expecting perfection of me? Again, I'm not talking about botching brain surgery here. 
I just need something to disprove the idea that the world is filled with judgmental, unforgiving jerks. So, sometimes, I'm late to a meeting on purpose. I show the same slide twice in a talk. I leave a typo in an email. Sometimes, I word say in the wrong order in a podcast. Think people will cut me some slack? It's all a little message to let me know that some folks actually will like me even if I'm not perfect, and it takes the pressure off. So pick one of your own beliefs that might be worth testing. Are you unable to finish work because it might not be good enough? Do a bad draft and apologize later. Think your friends will freak out if you don't text them back immediately? Make them wait until tomorrow and see what happens. Find your irrational belief and put it to the test. Gather some data, you scientist, you. Screw up a little something on purpose today. You're bound to learn a lot. Thanks for listening to Burning Issues. My hearty thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest, Dr. Julie Netherland of the Drug Policy Alliance. Don't forget to join us again next week. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine at CannabisRadio.com. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.